Hey y'all, this is Tommy. Today's episode of Southbound is a replay of my conversation with poet Ada Limon. When we talked in 2021, she was already known as one of America's finest poets. But since then, she's been named United States Poet Laureate. And she recently received one of those MacArthur Foundation Genius Grants. I choose to call this the Southbound Bump. No matter the reason, it did me good to hear Ada's voice again, talking about the South and mostly about hope. I hope it'll do you good to hear her voice too. Fear and anxiety, turns out, are not a creative wellspring. <laughs> that is Ada Limon, one of America's finest poets. Her book, Bright Dead Things, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And her follow-up, The Carrying, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. She's a native Californian, but now lives in Lexington, Kentucky, where she has thought a lot about the hospitality of the South, especially during the pandemic. She and I also talked about something we have in common, the struggle with our spouses to have a child. And we end up talking about how much hope is possible in the world we're living in. Here's my conversation with Ada Limon. So, uh, Ada Limon, would you like to start by sharing a poem with us? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, I think the poem I'll begin with is a poem that is a, a poem I wrote for myself about getting through winter. And I feel like it's at a time where we need to start thinking about spring and that spring might actually come. <laughs> and so um, this is a poem from my book, The Carrying, Instructions on Not Giving Up. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crab apple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains, it's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy and the world's baubles and trinkets leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come, patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, a return to the strange idea of continuous living. Despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist. I'll take it all. I saw an interview with you that you did, I think it was on PBS a few years ago, where you talked about uh, poetry as being a sort of vehicle of what you called radical hope as a way to sort of hope through the world and believe in yourself and believe in the general goodness of people despite everything. Well, since then, a lot has happened. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering whether a few years down the road and as you look into the future, whether you still feel that way. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that quote by Richard Hugo, which is, uh, writing is a way of saying you and the world have a chance. And 
I still believe in that chance. And I don't know if it's always hope, right? I, I don't know if it's always hope. I think sometimes it's just survival and survival feels like hope because it's all you can muster. Um, but I do, I still believe in the chance and I still want to be here for that chance. Um, I, you know, I think that this, the past year has, you know, uh, really taught me a lot about resilience and not giving up on, on some levels of, of when you really want to, right? When, what does surrendering look like? And I think I've learned at least for myself and my own, you know, creation of art and, and poetry is that one of the things that has kept me coming back to the desk in the morning and feeling okay is poetry. And that's not just writing it, but really reading it and knowing that other people are writing it out there and finding and feeling that community that art is still being made and that words are still being used for good, you know, despite how we've seen words being used in the last year. Um, and that there's still a truth telling. Uh, and I, I find that really valuable to me. And it feels like a lifeline. You know, we write poems for each other. We write poems to go down into ourselves, but also so that we can look at one another and say, oh, me too. I see you. I witness you. I recognize you. And that's what we need right now. We can't touch each other. We can't hug each other. We can't hold each other. But we can write these poems that celebrate one another and reach out and connect. Actually, this kind of leads into, in a way, what I wanted to ask you about here at the beginning. Um, metaphorically speaking, we've been through a long winter the last year or more with the pandemic and with the political crisis and all those things going on. How have either or both of those things affected your creative life? And if one of those has affected them more than the other? Um, that's a great question. I think it's been from the very beginning of the pandemic, I had a really hard time writing like most people, like most creative artists. It was an overwhelming fear and anxiety that was taking place. And I've always said that anxiety is absolutely the hardest place for me to write from. Um, fear and anxiety, turns out, are not a creative wellspring. <laughs> um, and so it took me a while to be able to kind of write through what was happening with me as a human being in this body at this time. Um, that didn't really start until April or May. I was finally able to kind of kind of get through it. Um, in terms of the political moment and the place we are in terms of who we are as a country, who we are as a people, I think that's always with me. I think that to me doesn't silence me as much because I feel like I'm always needing to write through those moments. And you know, for centuries, poets and artists have been responding to moments even more tumultuous than ours. And so I feel like it's not just um, something I need to write through, but it's my duty in service to those that have come before to, uh, to keep talking back to this particular moment. Was there a trigger or some sort of moment 
where you started to feel freed up again? Or was it just more of like a slow kind of tidal thing? You know, I think there was a moment in which I realized not to be sort of dramatic about it, but that I realized I needed it and that I wasn't going to come out on the other side of this whenever the other side is. Um, okay, <laughs> if I wasn't writing. And so I think it became about really the daily practice and discipline of doing it and not trying to get a perfect poem, not trying to get a poem that sums up anything, but really just getting myself to a place where, okay, I need to write in order to reconnect with myself, with reconnect with the world and to not feel so isolated. Um, so it became really out of necessity that I began to write as opposed to, oh, I'm going to create some great work, right? It was more about, okay, how can I save myself a little bit day by day by parsing some words together and seeing what I can make out of this strange new music that we're all living in. That's the mark of a professional, right? You you do the work even when you don't feel like it. I think it's the mark of someone who uh, who desperately needs poetry to survive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about, to go back to politics for just a second. You know, as, as I'm sure you know, the star of the inauguration was this young poet, Amanda Gorman, who, who did this poem, The Hill We Climb. Yes. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. I'm wondering, as a poet, how you felt about that moment? Oh, it was just marvelous. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. For me, there was... I'm always a little nervous when poetry takes the national stage because above all, I'm rooting for poetry. Um, and so I think for the most part, we almost always win when poetry is on the national stage. And yet there's a part of me that gets nervous and thinks, oh, I hope people will like this poem. I hope people will relate to it. I hope she performs well. Um, and of course she just knocked it out of the park and I, I was, I was blown away by not just the written word, but by her performance. And I was really heartened by people's reaction to it as well. That it um, really buoyed my spirits, I think. And any time that poetry can be lifted up and shown as an art form that is more than the quiet thing we do in the library, uh, and can be seen as urgent and important and necessary uh, is a time that I'm uh, celebrating. So to me, it was just a marvelous, marvelous moment. I found myself wondering as you were saying all this, whether as she was giving this, you know, as she was presenting this poem, are like poets texting each other or something and saying, wow, this is great or whatever. Oh, 100%. Yes, numerous text threads. I was getting texts throughout it. Um, I had numerous text threads going with other poets. At one point, we thought we had the schedule, and I thought she was going in between the two singers. And so I was worried that worried somehow that she wasn't going to go. And I said, you know, there was Twitter, poetry Twitter was all a fluster with whether or not she was, we had missed the poet or that the poet wasn't going to go on. Um, no, you would be surprised 
how many poets just deep down root for poetry. (laughs) (laughs) As I was looking through your work, I found a poem that I thought seemed to be especially relevant now, even though you wrote it couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. It's called a love poem with apologies for my appearance. Could you sort of describe what it's about and kind of where that came from and why it might feel relevant these days? Yeah, um, that poem was written for my husband. And, you know, I often traveled and did a lot of readings, you know, pre pandemic. And so I was always sort of uh, getting dressed up and buying outfits for these, you know, massive performances. And I was sort of lucky enough to be speaking at colleges and universities throughout the United States and um, even internationally. And he would see these pictures, you know, and be like, oh, you look so wonderful. And then I kind of come home and sort of uh, dissolve into the real artist that I am, which is usually someone who's somewhat messy and um, isn't as polished as the performer, if you will. And the place where the poems come from, right, is a place of tenderness and vulnerability and uh, seriousness and messiness and all of those things. And I had this moment where I realized my poor husband was only ever seeing the artist Ada and wasn't always seeing the performer Ada. The artist, so, the, the artist in sweatpants and t-shirts. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. And so the first line is actually something I said, which was, sometimes I think you get the worst of me. And I feel like that's a poem that like, those of us who are maybe not as poetically inclined, might be able to hand to our partners and say, here, this is, this is what I mean. I didn't say it this well, but this is kind of what I mean. I, I, I wanted to ask about, you talked about those moments before April or May or whatever, when you were having a hard time getting work out, how else did you cope? I mean, I, I read in your poetry a lot of allusions to gardening and that sort of thing. And I imagine myself, or I imagine you digging in the dirt, but maybe that's not it. No, I think that was a big part of it. Thank you for mentioning it. I think trying to figure out my connection to the earth. Um, I think like many of us, because we weren't allowed uh, to go outward. Uh, We had to go inward. And part of me going inward was also going back to the soil. Um, I have a small garden, but you know, like any of us who garden know that even a small plot can bring much joy. Um, Also the birds, I have to hand it to the birds. (laughs) Um, I got now I think I have four feeders now. And Um, I'm constantly watching them and paying attention to them and feel very connected to, to their world and watching them and observing them really helped me through some of those moments of deep loneliness. My husband had to be on the road for, for work despite the pandemic. So a lot of the early pandemic I spent on my own. And if it wasn't for the garden, the birds, my little dog and cat, I don't know I don't know how I would have gotten through. They kept me company. Next up, Adeline Moan talks about the process of writing about her unsuccessful efforts to have a child. I was able to write about it because I had to, um, I think, to work through it on my own. And then what I did was give myself permission to not publish those poems. I thought, let me write them with the intention of not putting them out in the world and see what happens. That and more 
I head on southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Ada Limon. This podcast is about the South. Um, you are a Southern transplant. You grew up in California, lived in New York, New York for a long time, came to Lexington, Kentucky for your husband's job, right? Mm-hmm. With your husband's job. Um, and you have this poem that ran in the New Yorker called State Bird yeah. that begins, Confession, I did not want to live here. And I know that was a while ago. And I'm wondering how you feel now about living in the South. I really love Kentucky and there's been this sort of part of me that's felt very much a part of this community, even in my neighborhood. And I know I'm sure most people feel that way right now. Our lives have gotten smaller and yet there's more importance to our neighbors. And I rely very much on my neighbors and my neighborhood to check on me and I check on them. And just the other day it started snowing and my husband was going around shoveling people's driveways that didn't have anyone to shovel. And it it feels like we are, um, this sort of small little neighborhood I live in is, is very, has become like family. And I think that's been really important. Um, I also think one of the things that never, but people don't talk about as much when we talk about the South is, um, how diverse it is, um, and how diverse a community it is. And also the fact that it's so beautiful. You know, I think people lose track of the fact that the South has a very complicated and fraught history and yet has, you know, some of the most natural beauty um, that you can imagine. I, during the fall, I was able to make it out to the Red River Gorge quite a few times to go hiking. And it's just an incredible place to spend time. And I feel very lucky to be so close to the natural world here in Kentucky. Do you feel like there really is a difference sort of qualitatively in that neighborliness between here and other places you lived, or is it just a, a matter of style? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I definitely feel like there is a politeness here, which is lovely. Um, and I also think that there is a, you know, having lived a long time in New York, which I adore, one of my all-time favorite cities and will still feel like home, um, everyone leaves leaves you enough space, right? Everyone's, you live in your world, I'll live in my world. If something happens, I've got your back. New Yorkers were, are right there to help if something goes wrong. But if nothing's going wrong, let's just all sort of leave each other alone. 
And I think in the South, there's a little more engagement. There's a little more checking in. Um, and I think, especially during the pandemic, that's been really nice. That just having texts from people that, you know, can I bring you something? You know, can I drop something off on your front porch? You know, and, and having that, uh, that constant connection has felt really good. And I'm not sure if that's different than anywhere else, but, um, but I definitely have uh, needed it. <laughs> I needed it. What was your path to becoming a poet? You know, I started writing when I was quite young, uh, sort of small rhyming poems, as most people do when they're seven and eight, et cetera. And, and then uh, I wrote a lot of songs. I still write some songs. And then it wasn't until I was in high school that I found poetry, um, some poet poetry by Elizabeth Bishop, by Sharon Olds, that I started becoming really engaged within it. Uh, and then I worked at a bookstore, Reader's Books in Sonoma, California. And I, uh, I, I remember my favorite job was to alphabetize the poetry section because then I could pull them out and look at them and rearrange them and dust. And um, it felt like this sort of connection with all of these beautiful books. And I don't know what it was, but I, poetry never had that it never felt like it was holding me out, which I know a lot of people feel that way. Like, oh, I feel shut out from poetry or it feels too complicated or I never felt that way. Um, and I feel lucky that I had that reaction to it. It always felt like, oh, this makes total sense to me. Even if it didn't make sense, it made sense to me, some sort of sense on some sort of musical level or soul level, if you will. Um, and so then I started writing then, um, I mean, pretty, pretty terrible poems, but, and then it, it wasn't until college in my junior year that I started taking it seriously and took a couple courses. And then after that applied to graduate school and went to NYU where I studied with Phil Levine and Galway Canal and Sharon Olds and Marie Howe and, um, and became really serious about what it was to not make a career out of poetry, because I don't know if you can do that. I don't know what a career of poetry looks like, but to make a life out of poetry. Um, and yeah, it, it became, it felt, I, I, I hesitate to say the word calling, um, but it felt like it was a moment in my life when I was really writing that I had found something that felt as close to freedom as I could imagine. Um, and it also felt like there weren't limits. It felt like I could keep going with this forever. It feels like I am most myself when I am working and writing through a poem. I want to ask sort of a practical question because there may be people listening to this who feel like they have a poet's heart or something, but also heard what you just said about what does it even mean to have a career mm -hmm. in poetry? And so how do you balance out the this work that you clearly love and care about so much with sort of the practical realities of kind of how to make a day-to-day -day living? I, I was, as you were talking, I was wondering like, how many people are there in America who just make a living on being a poet, like five, you know, I don't know. I don't even know the answer yeah, to that. Yeah, that's probably, that's, how, how that's do, probably a good guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how do you make it work? Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think that's a great question. I, I always think it's important to talk about how artists make livings because I think it's hard um, for, for many different types of art. 
Um, one of the things that poets are lucky to have is that we, all we really need is a, a pen and paper. We don't even really need a computer. Um, and we just need ourselves. And that is a massive benefit. Uh, I have a lot of people who are actors and friends who are in theater that are struggling so hard right now because they can't be in part of theater groups, right? And, and they're missing that camaraderie and the energy of the live theater, of the audience, all of that. Um, and we're, you know, poets are lucky that our art form really can be kind of quiet and culled down to a pretty small um, working space. Um, throughout my life, I think it's been a question of how do I balance making my art and making a living. And I, I think most poets deal with that. Um, primarily, most poets tend to go into teaching. For me, I didn't do that right off the bat. I went into magazines. I worked for GQ and Travel and Leisure and Martha Stewart. Um, and I was the copy director for GQ for some time for the, um, for the publishing side. And then I was the creative services director for the publishing side of Travel and Leisure magazine. And I found that it was actually kind of wonderful to work in a different way with words. Um, you know, many things were at stake, but it felt like I could allow myself to be creative without feeling like I was putting my soul on the line like I do with poetry. Um, and so magazines work uh, supported me for a long time. And then um, I was able in 2010 to quit my job and move first to California and then to Kentucky with my husband. Um, and from there started freelancing and then started teaching a little bit. And I still teach here and there as a, right now I'm the more visiting poet at Stanford University, I'm teaching online. It's always a struggle because a, a lot of people wanna make their art their life and they want to um, make money at it. Uh, one of the things that's really difficult is the fact that we have to separate that out with poetry. It's not very often that you can make a lot of money from poetry. What you can, is heal yourself, find a community, connect with people, reach out, um, and be free in a way, you know? And those things count for something and those things matter. But your poetry also wants you to have a job and pay your rent and feel healthy and be able to put food on the table and all of that too. You talked about laying your soul on the line. And I wanted to ask about one part of that in particular. Um, some of your poems in your most recent book were about the struggle that you and your husband had to have a child. Mm -hmm. um, my wife and I had the same struggles and ended up in the same place, uh, which was not having a child. Mm -hmm. And I know when I wrote about that um, as part of the memoir that I wrote, that was like the last thing in the book that I decided to put in. It was really difficult for both of us to decide whether or not that was something we wanted to share with the world, basically. And I wanted to ask about your thoughts on that and how you came to the decision to write about it. It's so personal. And sometimes when you're going through it, you don't even realize how personal it is. You don't even realize how many little secrets you're keeping from other people around you um, in order to protect yourself. 
um, from whatever outcome may happen, especially while you're currently trying um, to have a child. Uh, I think that the way that I was able to write about it, and I'm not sure how this worked for you, but I was able to write about it because I had to, um, I think, to work through it on my own. And then what I did was give myself permission to not publish those poems. I thought, let me write them with the intention of not putting them out in the world and see what happens. And so that really helped me because I was able to at least work through a bunch of the stuff. And then I was able to set it aside, wait for a couple months, sometimes in, you know, in a few of the poems cases, almost six to nine, 10, you know, almost a year, and then go, okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to put this out in the world. For me, and I'm, I'm not sure how this was for you, but for me, I wasn't able to publish those poems until I, we had made a decision to stop fertility treatments and to decide to be comfortable with not having a child and being child-free. Um, I don't think I could have put the work in the world if we were still in the process and if some of those questions were still up in the air. I think that would have been too hard for me. Um, and the reason I say that is because I think as much as it's a very personal um, experience, it's also shared by a lot of people and a lot of people want to talk about it. And my very first reading for the carrying, I was unprepared for how many women came to me. It was particularly women came to me telling me their stories about infertility, about fertility treatments. Some of them had adopted, some of them had miscarried. And the entire book line uh, was full of really heart-rendering stories that in some cases were hard to hear. And um, I was so, I don't want to say glad, but I was relieved in so many ways that I had, uh, that I was safe in my decision and had some distance from it. There's many different ways that we want to expose ourselves and be vulnerable and tender to the world, especially as poets, but as writers in general. Um, but I think there's also ways that we need to focus on self-preservation protect ourselves, our hearts, our, our partners, our family that is, are part of our work. Um, and I'm very conscious of that as an artist. I always want to go down into the well, but I always want to make sure I have a ladder out. I don't know about you, but my life lately has felt a lot more prosaic than poetic. To tap into the deep joy of poetry means you also might bump into the rage and grief that a lot of us have been holding in. But for Ada Limon, poetry isn't just useful, it's essential. And I think some type of poetic feeling, something that reaches down into that well of our emotions, is necessary for all of us. Maybe it's something different for you, a song or a movie or a long run at daybreak. Maybe a mix of some of those things. Or maybe, on some Sunday morning, it's a few lines of a poem, like this one. But love, I'll concede this. Whatever state you are, I'll be that state's bird. The long, obvious blur of song people point to when they wonder where it is you've gone.
that's Ada Limon. And maybe some of that is what you need. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.